Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning. You guys heard me say thanks be to God there. I think my microphone was on, so that's good. Um, how about Pastor Pete on the bass back here, right? Huh? Get you, uh, get you a pastor who can do both, right? Yeah. You know, after seeing that, Rick asked me what instrument I play, and I want to set the expectations very clearly. Nothing. Okay? You will not see me up there uh, with the band, but I am glad to be up here back in our little pulpit here. Took some time away for our little baby. Our little Penny is welcoming her into the world. Okay, yeah, yeah, we can clap for her. Yeah. Yeah, so I had some time away, you know, clear my head a little back, uh, come back really well rested. Um, why are you laughing? Yeah, okay. I don't look well rested. Okay, so I'm just, I'm glad to be back. We'll say that. I'm glad to be back and continuing on in our fall vision series called Knowing, Loving, and Serving. And uh, we've been in this series for a while, encompassing the five practices uh, with a few guest speakers throughout. And so one last refresher for you, the vision of Antioch Church is to join in with God in the reconciliation of all things. And the way that we see that playing out is that we need to reconcile our relationships in six areas. So you see on the slide there, uh, our relationship with God is reconciled through the practice of communion. Our relationship with ourselves is reconciled through the practice of formation. With those in the church, we do that through community. With our city, we do that with hospitality. Uh, with the world, we do that with justice. And I don't know about you guys, but when I, I look at the list and I see the way those relationships and practices, they line up with each other, uh, you know, it makes sense to me. So yeah, you know, that's a pretty, uh, pretty good list. But I'll tell you what, when you arrive at our sixth practice, you might be thinking to yourself, what does Sabbath have to do with creation? Like, how are these things lined up? Is that a typo? Because if you're sitting here today, if you are watching at home, you probably have a basic understanding of the Sabbath, right? It's, it's one of the commandments. You know that you are not supposed to work at all. You're supposed to rest and worship and do nothing else. You know, maybe that the Pharisees got mad at Jesus for what he did on the Sabbath. But how does it tie in with creation? And for those of you who have grown up in church or, or been around faith for a while, there are some misconceptions about what creation actually is. So what do we mean when we use that word creation? I think the first of these misconceptions is that creation is a synonym for nature or the outdoors. Yes, that is absolutely one component of creation, but not the whole thing. Another misconception is that creation refers to what God created in the beginning. You know, in Genesis 1, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and so on for six days until he rested. I think that for a lot of us, how we understand creation is based on mainly on these two perspectives. And so we miss out on the whole picture. So what we're going to do today is we are going to look at Psalm 8 and the creation account in Genesis 1 to give a fuller picture of creation. Hopefully, when we begin to shift our understanding of creation and its deep connection to the Sabbath in our heads, we'll see God in a different way and experience him more profoundly with our hearts and see that realized in our hands. Thomas Aquinas was a priest and philosopher from the 13th century, and he puts it like this. He says, sacred writings are bound in two volumes, 
that of creation and that of Holy Scripture. So we are going to dive into both of these sacred writings together. So Psalm 8, as we heard Medell say, it begins like this. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This same, this same phrase serves as both the opening line to this psalm and the closing line because this is the context to keep in mind throughout this whole psalm. It's a frame of praise that emphasizes God's majestic role as creator in relation to creation. And as the psalm continues, it emphasizes being in awe of your heavens and, and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars. But what is a bit unique about this psalm is that while it's very clearly addressed to God, while we see that in the mirrored first and last verse, Psalm 8 is mostly about us. It's about the human relationship with what we call here at Antioch the rest of creation. And what is the right exercise of dominions by humans over the rest of creation? Verse 4, it picks up in light of this wonderful, majestic, awe-inspiring creation, and it asks this question, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Basically, where do we fit in with all of this? Verses five and six, they try and put us as humans in our proper context. We are, you know, not quite angels, a little bit lower than them, but we still have glory and honor, so that's good. We're, we're rulers over the works of God's hands. Everything is under our feet. The flocks and the herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, everything. But what does it mean for us to serve as the rulers over all creation? To have everything under our feet. And so the answer to those can be found if we take a look back at the creation account in Genesis 1. So quick refresher. Again, Genesis 1.1, start of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have the six days of creation. First day, light. Second day, sky. Third day, dry land, seas, plants, and trees. Fourth day is the, the cosmos, the galaxy, galaxy, sun, moon, stars. Fifth day, we have sea creatures and air creatures. Sixth day, we have land, animals, and humans. So a couple observations here. When we look at the creation account, we see that there are two categories and two categories only. There is the creator and the created. That's it. But that's not really how we tend to read the creation story or even live in the world. In our lives and throughout history, the way that this account has been interpreted has been entirely through an anthropocentric lens or just, you know, with humanity as the center or the most important thing. Whether we've been taught it explicitly or not, we've defined the pinnacle of creation as humanity. We tend to jump from Genesis 1-1 of in the beginning all the way to Genesis 1-27 where God finally creates humankind. And between those two ideas, there are 26 other verses talking about the rest of God's creation in which he describes each element as good. It's as if we have the perspective in which God created humanity on one day and everything else on the rest. I mean, shoot, look at that list. We don't even get our own day, right? <laughs> We're with all the other land creatures like cows and donkeys and even cats, okay? <laughs> Only Amy's happy about that, right? So how not special do you feel, right? You're made on the same day as cats. So if we are to have a healthy understanding of creation, we must understand that we are a part of creation and not above it. 
That's why we use the phrase the rest of creation when we talk about it here at Antioch, because we are a part of creation, you and me and each one of us. You've heard me quote Wendell Berry before because he's one of my all-time favorite authors, but you can't talk about creation ecology without quoting Wendell Berry because he says this. He says, we are holy creatures living among other holy creatures in a world that is holy. So we see in the creation account that it's not about humanity's independence from creation, but the story being told is one of interdependence between all of creation of which humanity or we are a part that each component of creation is in a symbiotic relationship with every other part. So if we are within creation and alongside it, what are we to do with Psalm 8 when it talks about ruling over the rest of creation or in Genesis when it says that we are to subdue the earth? Or maybe if you grew up in church, the language of having dominion over, you remember that? Well, this word in Hebrew is radah, and I think its translation, or maybe more accurately, its mistranslation, has some, done some of the most harm in our world compared to any other word in Scripture because of how it's been used to justify abuse of the earth and its flora and fauna. When we hear subdue, when we hear have dominion over, just dominate, we get a clear picture, right? If we dominate something or someone else, we understand that as a, you know, take no prisoners. I can do whatever I want because I'm in charge. Consequences don't matter. Something like strip mining is, is an example of this. Instead, a better understanding of this word radah is one of caregiving and nurturing, not one of exploitation. It should be like a gardener looking after her plants rather than a tyrannical ruler who doesn't care for their subjects. So when Psalm 8 and this passage in Genesis talk about humanity serving as rulers, they don't have in mind a tyrant or a despot, but the role of a ruler as someone who provides peace and safety, who ensure that all are treated with justice and equity, one who rules with kindness, with provisions for good that seeks peace and well-being for all. This type of ruling is, is more like the descri description of a king of God's choosing in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy one who doesn't exalt themselves over the other members of the community, one who keeps God's commands and observes God's covenant. This is the type of relationship we are to have with the rest of creation. We are still to be that awestruck person gazing in wonderment at the stars who understands that, yes, we bear the image of God, but we are not God. We are a part of creation, and we do not stand apart, but we stand with and ultimately, as lords over creation, we are in fact servants of it because this is what Jesus shows us about true lordship. So where does the Sabbath come into all this? Earlier, we talked about the six days of creation that we are familiar with, but that's actually an indicator of another misunderstanding we have about creation because creation is truly seven days. What we didn't put on that slide before is the seventh day, Sabbath. Part of the reason why we tend to overlook this is how our Bible split up the first chapter of Genesis. Uh, for some reason, and to be clear, you know, chapters and verse, not original, didn't show up till the 13th century, but they decided to end Genesis chapter one after day six. Starting in chapter two, we see the seventh day. These guys had one job and they blew it, okay? The text reads like this, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. 
By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Throughout church history and in the church, we have tend to place the entire emphasis on the six days of creation. You've probably heard that phrase before. God created the, the earth and the heavens, everything in six days, a six-day creation. We tend to think that God merely rested after six days of creation. The seventh day is not that important. We tend to read God resting as, as God needing a break like any one of us after a hard week in the office, Right? Uh, a pastor friend of mine named Phil, he talks about it like God did, deserves to plop down in his heavenly recliner, you know, grab the remote, veg out before having to get back to work, trying to avoid another case of the Mondays, right? So we tend to overlook this seventh day, and maybe we do it because we have a proclivity to assign worth to utilitarian things like work and activity and progress rather than rest. However, a full picture of creation emphasizes that it truly was seven day and it was not complete until God rested. If we are really looking for the, the crown or the pinnacle of creation, the Sabbath is where we need to start. Jürgen Moltmann is a professor and a theologian and he has a seminal work called God in Creation and he puts it like this. He said, God created the world for his glory out of love and the crown of creation is not the human being it is the Sabbath. So the Sabbath isn't just a weekend day when God takes time to chill, but a day set apart when God delights in everything that was created and he soaks it all in. God pauses to take an opportunity to look at all of creation and us included and enjoy it. He's declared it as very good and he has offered Sabbath as a blessing for all of creation to participate. So in the context of our knowing, loving, and serving, or, or head, heart, hands, it's imperative that we know in our heads about what our role with creation, or within creation. It's important we know that subduing or having dominion over should make us really feel more like servants than rulers, and that the Sabbath is the pinnacle of creation. When we're able to know that, our hearts can be changed to fully understand how to live out that relationship and connect it with this idea of Sabbath. Because part of what happens when I understand that there is a creator and creation of which I am a part, Sabbath is both a practice and a posture. Because it's a posture that says, I am not God. While we may never declare that we are God out of our mouths, we tend to live that way and make decisions that way. But the idea and practice of the Sabbath demonstrates that the world is going to go on without me. The world will survive without me. I get to participate in this beautiful creation and world that God has described as very good without having to hold it all together. We, and we talk about it this way at Antioch, that we experience a transition from worry to rest when we take this Sabbath mindset. Now, I'm going to warn you, I am going to give an illustration about my daughter, Penny. And I don't want you to think that I'm like a parent now and I'm only going to give illustrations about my kids, okay? Some pastors do that, okay? I'm not going to do that. But this is perfect, all right? So for you experienced parents or maybe you have several kids or you've had kids for a long time, you're probably going to chuckle at this and say, oh yeah, I remember my first kid, right? Penny was born 12.42 a.m., you know, middle of the night. Took a few hours after that to get her settled, take care of mom, you know, get out of birth mode, which is probably not a good medical term, but 
not a medical person. So Penny is a few hours old. Julia has obviously just done the most incredible, amazing, tiring thing. And the nurses are just like, okay, well, Penny will want to sleep for a while now. Why does everybody just lay down and get some rest? And I'm like, excuse me? Who's going to be watching the baby, right? If you guys leave the room and we sleep, how are we going to know that she's like alive, breathing, like all of this, right? And like, oh, she'll be fine. She just wants to sleep. And so nurses leave the room. Julia, very deservingly, rightfully so, falls asleep pretty quickly. And I was like, not going to do it. There's no way I'm going to sleep. I've been awake for like 40 plus hours. But if I do not watch this baby, something terrible is going to happen. Okay. So I just stayed awake and stared at her. You know, I'm just like, my eyes are bloodshot. I'm like, I'm just going to stare at her, make sure that everything is okay. And it took me several nights to feel comfortable and overcome my anxiety and worry to actually, you know, be able to go to sleep or sleep. But, you know, you get the idea, right? And I think that this illustrates many of our challenges with the Sabbath is we don't really trust that the world will go on without us or that our families, our, our lives, our jobs, our town, our community will go on without us, or if we don't get that thing done or respond to that email or finish that project. We are so important to what God is doing in our communities, lives, churches, families, whatever. Everything will fall apart if we actually step back and took a Sabbath. We don't trust that God has everything under control. Instead, We need to see that the creation and Sabbath, they draw us towards humility and reverence for God. Reverence for who God is and all he has created and humility that all of it is gonna go on without us. So then I guess the next logical question is what does it mean to practice Sabbath? Is it even possible in our world today? Is that an ancient idea, archaic? How do we do it? We have soccer practice, we have errands, we have iPhones, we have Netflix, we have full calendars. How do we practice Sabbath? And I think it starts with understanding and expanding what our idea of Sabbath looks like. Rather than seeing it as an over, overly religious or a pharisaical sense, uh, it's absolutely no work, we must realize that there is more to the Sabbath than just not working. An invitation to a Sabbath life has many range of expressions that are beyond that idea. The word Sabbath, it comes from the Hebrew for Shabbat. Pete talked about this a few weeks ago with the Sabbath elevators that he encountered throughout Israel. But Shabbat literally means to stop. To stop working, yes, but also to stop wanting and also to stop worrying. Just stop everything. But Shabbat actually has a dual meaning in addition to stopping, and that is to delight. Not just stopping, but taking an entire day and setting it aside to follow God's example, to stop and delight. Delight in the world, delight in our lives in it, and above all, to delight in God himself. John Mark Comer, he is a pastor in Portland, and he talks about this idea in a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Highly recommend it. Maybe we're going to have to add it to the library. I'll get on that, okay? But the Sabbath is ultimately an invocation to delight and to play. If we started by knowing the idea that the Sabbath is supposed to be about rest and worship, our work is to expand what our definition of worship is. 
We'll talk more about some practical ideas in a moment, but whatever draws us into deeper intimacy with God, it causes us to delight in him. This is what our worship of God looks like. Sabbath should not be constricting. It should actually be freeing. But we also have to understand that the practice of Sabbath goes beyond one day. And the reality is that people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. So yeah, the the Sabbath is about one day, but it's also more than a day. It's a way of being in the world that takes us from worry to rest as we abide in the Father's loving presence, as we trust him with his care for us, and we celebrate the good in this world. Comer talks about it like this. He says, the Sabbath isn't just a 24-hour time slot in your schedule. It's a spirit of restfulness with you throughout the week. It's a way of living with ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. It's a way of working from rest, not for rest, with nothing to prove. It's a way of bearing fruit from abiding, not ambition. So that's what has to change in our hearts and in our love. But what can we do practically with our hands to serve in this area? First, it starts with playing our part in God's work of continuing creation today. And let's be real, as Christians throughout history, we have done a pretty terrible job of caring for the rest of creation. We have not understood the assignment. We've taken subdue and dominate very seriously as we've done irreparable damage to our planet and the plants and creatures that inhabit it. Barry, uh, Wendell Berry, he talks about this as the most horrid blasphemy that we have flung God's gifts to us in his face by the way that we've destroyed them. But hopefully, as we reclaim our role as stewards and servants of creation, we can begin to make a change and a difference. We can all make small ecological choices as a form of spiritual discipline, whether that's as simple as composting, recycling, or just consuming less. One of the best ways to counteract climate change and to play our part is lived in how we think about food and the food economy. That the more that we participate in food production by growing or harvesting our own food, preparing our own food, buying locally, supporting local farmers, these are ecological, spiritual practices. We can practice ethical consumption by supporting individuals and businesses that are willing to sacrifice profits and growth in the name of sustainable practices. And I know what you're thinking, this isn't just like hippy-dippy millennial stuff, okay? These are serious spiritual practices that hopefully lead to big changes in the world. Because the harsh reality is that you or me recycling more or driving a hybrid car or electric car is not going to solve our impending climate crisis. But spiritual practices are not concerned with immediate results, but they're concerned about a changing of the heart and fostering more intimacy with God. And hopefully, as we make these small choices together, they'll draw us into larger advocacy work, supporting initiatives and leaders and organizations who will rethink our treatment of the world. Because as, cre- as Christians, we have the best reason to care about creation. That's because we worship the creator. And big changes are needed to alter course from where we are headed. And the truth is that all of these other issues that we might focus more on, like justice or caring for the poor or or sharing the good news of Jesus, cannot occur unless our planet is healthy. The effects of climate change are felt by the poor and the vulnerable more than anywhere else. Our commitment to justice requires a commitment to creation. 
And if we take seriously in scripture, particularly in Romans, where it says that even without words, that creation serves as a witness to those who don't know God, we harm that witness if we choose not to care for the rest of creation. But when it comes to starting with the day of Sabbath, as contradictory as it sounds, it's going to take some work. Some work to prepare your schedule and your life to be able to say no to the things that tell you to go instead of stop and that draw you away from delighting in God. Ask yourself, what could I do for 24 hours that would fill my soul with deep joy, with awe, with wonder, with gratitude and praise? That's how you figure out how to uniquely practice a day of Sabbath in your life. I remember when Pastor Linda came back from sabbatical and she was talking to me about it and she said that she had come to this freeing realization that Sabbath didn't need to be this rigid idea where she wasn't allowed to do anything but an opportunity to worship and delight in God in unique ways. So I think the best place to start is to make a list of what brings you delight. What are the experiences that the veil feels thin in your life? Is it sharing a good meal and a bottle of wine with friends and family in your home? Sitting by the fireplace and reading a good book? Playing board games as a family? Going outside, spending time in nature, hiking, biking, paddling? Emulating Jesus and his deep love for naps, okay? <laughs> I know that it can be easy to think about, okay, take advantage of this idea. I find delight in playing 10 hours of video games or watching an entire season of Parks and Rec in one sitting, right? These things might cause some, you know, evanescent or fleeting moments of delight, but these are choices to numb out and to veg out rather than to enter into and delight. And depending upon who you are, some activities could be delightful for some people and not for others. You might say, I enjoy uh, watching the ducks or the beavers game. That brings me delight. We watch as a family. We connect with one another. We have fun watching the game. We enjoy one another's presence. Others of you might have blood pressure levels soaring. You might be throwing things at the TV, experiencing the opposite of delight, right? You'll know it when you experience it. Doesn't have to, Sabbath doesn't have to be on a set day either in Judaism. Starts on sundown on Friday, sundown on Saturday. Christians adopted it, generally started taking on Sunday. Truth is, it doesn't matter what day you do it, whatever works in your schedule. A lot of us pastors here do it on Friday. Another good place to start is to think about how you use technology, maybe taking a technology Sabbath. There uh, is a book called 24-6, and an author named Tiffany Schlain, she talks about how her family took up the practice of turning off their devices every 24, for 24 hours every Friday night. That just choosing to disconnect from their devices brought them together as a family and helped them experience joy and delight in a way in which they hadn't experienced before. That they untethered themselves from their phones, which tethered them to rest and delight in a profound way. So begin to think about how you can order your life and your family's life around creating a day that is primarily about stopping to worship, rest, and delight in God, however you do that. Because ultimately, a reconciled relationship with creation takes work in our head, heart, and hands. The kind of dirty little secret about our series that we're looking at practices now is that we're actually focusing more on the relationship than the practice. The relationship is much more important, but the practices serve to heal that. 
Because creation care is not an optional extra. As we see in Genesis, it's what makes us uniquely human. We've been given great power, and so we must choose great responsibility. And as we truly understand our relationship with creation, we see its importance in our vision of the reconciliation of all things. That as we understand the whole gospel, that salvation is not just about eternal life for some lucky humans, but it is the flourishing of all God's creatures and the rest of creation as we move towards the world to come. That the Sabbath points to the reconciliation of all things and ties together God's creation and the larger meta narrative and the story of redemption. That every time we practice Sabbath, we get a taste of heaven and when all things are made right. So, Antioch family, may we be a Sabbath people who move from worry to rest as we choose to celebrate the good. Pastor Amy is going to continue on in this theme and give us a tangible opportunity to worship and to delight in God as she leads us through the practice of communion.